Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of reaching down inside and finding something really strange and unusual and making everybody pay attention to it. Hi. <laughs> this week we are doing Playing the Monster, especially in Bureau 13. It's interesting that the last time we talked about playing monsters was all the way back when, Blix? Well, that was episode 54. Actually, amazing that you remember that, Blix, because you weren't a host on that episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> I happen to like this topic. Playing monsters is fun. I like being very scary. As long as you don't sparkle. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're not judging the monsters here. We're just talking about how to play them. Because they're not evil. They're just misunderstood. Unless they're evil and misunderstood. Well, yeah, then that's a double whammy. Just In the previous episode, what we talked about was, you know, what kind of supernatural creatures or what was the composition of the perfect Bureau 13 team. And we talked about some supernatural creatures, but we also talked about creatures that had powers like psionics or magic and things like that. So we're not talking about, you know, what's the best monster or what best supernatural or anything to have on your Bureau 13 team. Okay, that's up to the other team members to work out. We're just talking about if you decide to play a monster, if you decide to play a supernatural creature in a Bureau 13 game, in the Fringeworthy game, or any of the other games that we have, because you know you can have them also in Heartwater Hinterland, Magic Cost, or uh, some of the other places can support monsters. Even animals with a capital A, that's pretty close to a monster. Playing a sentient T-Rex would, be, would definitely qualify. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what we want to do is we want to talk about what does it take to really bring alive the unique qualities that you would have if you were playing a monster. Even the undead ones? Especially the undead ones. <laughs> Especially the live ones, yes. The first thing we have to talk about is... What's the reason for playing a monster? We don't want to talk about, well, he's got this power, he's got that power. Because if we do that, then all we're really doing is wearing a funny suit, uh, a bat belt on it with a new set of powers that we can use. But we're really playing just the same old characters inside through the eyepieces of that monster. Holy stereotype. That's not what we're trying to do here. We don't want to do that. We want to talk about what makes these monsters unique in behavioral sense, even a cultural sense, and therefore what it is you're trying to bring out about these monsters, which is part of playing the monster. John, since you want to talk about this, why don't you talk about the different mental points of view that a monster would have? I mean, he's not human. So how do you play an inhuman monster? It does require you doing some research on the creature. And yes, there's stuff within the game itself you can use. But sometimes you need to go back to the source material and look and see how the creatures are being portrayed and how they think. If you want to play a Grendel, what is Grendel's motivation? Now, I wouldn't suggest having a Grendel on your team. You probably lose a lot of people in the process. But there are some creatures out there, like a mummy. In that case, you're getting to the mindset of whatever race mummified that, be it Peruvian or be it uh, Egyptian. You would be thinking from that point of view, from an ancient point of view. It's not just the motivation of of the monster. I mean, that is very important. Okay, yeah. so you're you, you know you're you're going back and you're saying, okay, what would this monster want to do? But what's really, really, really important is that they're called monsters for a reason because they're generally the bad guy. Because they, you know they generally like kill and eat human beings and stuff. And and that's not what we're talking about playing because we're talking about playing a monster in you know in a modern setting. Well, it doesn't have to be a modern setting, but but we're basically defaulting to Bureau Thirteen. And you can extrapolate this any way you need to. In a Bureau 13 setting, you know, you have to think about how am I going to play this monster with all these other humans? And if you're playing a Bureau agent, he's got to be 
a monster who's ready to go up against the other monsters to save humankind. And the motivation you got to put in there is why would this monster want to do that? I mean, what what would drive this? You know, let's take a vampire, this blood sucking undead creature uh, who has you know all these powers and stuff. Um, why would he want to help humans at all? You know, and a natural way to go about this, or a very easy way to go about this, is to take a stereotype. So you could take, you know, Josh Wheaton's uh, version, um, Angel, and you could say, well, my vampire has a soul, and he's trying to repent for all his bad deeds. Okay, or you could be playing a Spike-like character where he is a bad guy vampire, and you know, somehow he falls in love with this human girl, although she was a slayer, but whatever, you know what I'm saying? Or a team member. Um, or a team member. Let's say, you know, he, he has, he's in love with whoever's playing the female uh, or male, doesn't matter, whatever your preference, uh, a human or maybe another monster who has another reason for being good and he's trying to impress that other person. So the point is, is that you, you, you got to give him, her, whatever, a reason to be on the side of humans because that's what we're doing here. I mean, unless you're playing an all monster crew who's going around hunting humans, but I mean, that's not really the spirit of what we're talking about. If you look at how human behavior is designed, you know, you look in psychology, they talk about a hierarchy of needs. They talk about the need for shelter, a need for food, the need for a safety and other needs that come on top of that. You know, we can pretty much assume that if you're in Bureau 13 and you're playing with a party, you're probably not worried about shelter. Okay. However, that might be an issue if you were a vampire because, you know, you have to have a safe place for you to sleep. So when you think about your character, the motivations that you have are going to come out of those basic necessities that you have as a monster. It may be that you need to eat, um, you know, rocks with chromium in it. Okay, well, that's going to be something that the the team's going to have to do, or you're going to have to be able to work out some way of getting off to go and do it. Obviously, the vampire, the need for blood. Okay, that's a form of sustenance. Okay, you join the bureau because you know that the bureau will provide you with a constant supply of the blood that you need because you're providing a service for them. These kinds of needs that you have, these requirements you have for your daily life, basic or more advanced, as such as a need for companionship, a need for excitement. Uh, if you're somebody who's lived a thousand years, you're probably pretty jaded by now. You're probably looking for something different. And being in a, in a Bureau 13 team, running against all kinds of other monsters, getting into the background of the Bureau with all kinds of strange people and the things that they've been associated with, that could be kind of the mental stimulation that'll keep you from falling into a coma, you know, and having to sleep for the next thousand years to kind of refresh yourself. I'd like to bring up the character that Amber and I made for Bureau 13, Serendipity, the half-succubus who was born in ancient Egypt like 3,400 years ago. And I, this would apply because she is half-succubus. Therefore, she has that supernatural monster quality to her. She joined the Bureau. Her reason was due to she knew her father was on a level of hell and could easily take over Earth. So she ended up joining the Bureau because it's like, yeah, you guys are good. You've been doing this for 150 years, but um, I've got information you need. I can teach you guys about magic. I can teach you about history, what really happened, because I was there. I can teach you about the world's religions, because I've traveled all over the world. So Saren joined the Bureau. Well, also her dragon companion, Feng Shen, also said, um, yeah, they'll keep you out of trouble. But, I mean, she's offering a service training agents after basic training in order to better prepare them for what she sees is coming. But it sounds like she has a personal need to teach people stuff. That all this knowledge that she has inside of her is bursting out and she can't tell it to the average Joe. They'd never believe it. But the Bureau, they would buy it. Serendipity is actually a very, and if you know Amber, like I've known her for the past 10 years, she puts a lot of that character into Serendipity. Hedonistic? would be a way to put serendipity. Feng Shen was the one that said he did it as also as a maturation process to get her to grow up a little. So she was there. She She's joined the Bureau, and she's cemented herself now into this role, realizing, yes, these are people I can understand because I've been apart from humanity because she's half human, granted, from ancient Egypt, directly, well, like 
a bastard child of, you know, one of the, uh, most of the fourth, I think. Feng Shen basically saw that Saren was just incredibly still just out for me. Her first, then Feng Shen, because, you know, he had been with her for so long. And humans, yeah, she associated with them, but it was kind of like, okay, yeah, they're cute. You know, I, I know more than them. I've lived longer than them. I can do things they can't. Feng Shen got her to join the Bureau because, one, he knew of Saren's father's plans. And, two, it would get her to grow up a little, finally. So, once she got into the Bureau, she realized, these are humans I can deal with. Some of them can do magic. Some of them can do psionics. Some of them have powers which, you know, rival my own. She teaches them because she realizes they don't know what's coming. My father, and what was the name of this incubus? Oh, Arubre. Arubre has legions of demons at his disposal. These guys need to know everything they can if they run into them. So, yeah, she is teaching them. But it's also a growing process for her because it's teaching a responsibility. So that's her motivation for being in the Bureau. And as I said, being half succubus, she has you know her issues. She's a succubus, right? So doesn't she have a need to suck? <laughs> to put it indelicately? Oh, no. Amber's let it be known that there have been various... Liaisons. Yeah, in every port. But this isn't a need. She, this is one of the things she has to do because of what she is. Her overriding desire now is to, I have to teach these people in case my father comes here. Would you say that this desire to, to, to teach humans how to save themselves from her father, uh, would you say that that is either her getting in touch with her human side, um, or is it Maybe she's, um, you know, she's been around so long that she's kind of bored and she's she's finally found a purpose in life. Like maybe she's been kind of drifting around for hundreds of years, has finally like become endeared to these people. If she's kind of immortal, what does she care? Yeah, she's lived like 3,400 years and she's seen these people, this this race, which, you know, she's related to through her ancient Egyptian parents. She's seen them mature and grow and become powerful on the planet. Problem is, she knows, yes, for all the power that these humans have, and I'm proud of them for how they've done, my father could wipe them out and just not even break a sweat. But why would she go against her father? What what keeps her from siding with him? What's her daddy issues? Dad has tried to get her, uh, how can I put it, join the company business, as it were, and she just realizes that human side, she is not, wanting to play that. She realizes she wants to be on Earth. She is part human. She realizes this. She does not give in entirely to her infernal demonic desires. So she's she's not fully human, but she would rather be amongst the humans than be amongst whatever he's bringing. She also knows that she's not as powerful as her other fellow succubi and incubi because of that relatively tainted human blood in her. If they take over, she's going to be stuck in an environment that is not friendly to her, whereas if the humans stick around, she's in an environment that works for her very well. Oh, yeah, yeah. She knows how to play the odds. She knows, you know, it's like, I would rather be above and better than the humans around me than be in a position where, because I am considered a bastard human child, half-child, I would be considered third-class citizen. How does she bring across her inhumanness? How does she bring across the monster that she is in her play? The way that Amber made the character was that she used her powers to get what she wanted, and until she met Feng Shen, she was the hedonist. I mean, she's seduced and killed back in ancient Greece, so it's like she did employ her inhumanness, but more as a means to an end, Machiavellian. Probably the alignment she would be considered as lawful evil, because she does have personal codes of honor. Overall, she doesn't want to wreak havoc on humans, and there are certain things she will not do. However, there will be certain things that she does in order to survive. So yeah, I would probably consider her lawful evil. And throughout the centuries, Feng Shen has tempered her and because the evil is in her that's ingrained due to the succubus she can't escape that okay blix what other inhuman aspects of other monsters would you want to bring to the table 
in order to really bring alive your presentation of a particular monster. The whole berserkness of, of some of these creatures, like werewolves and vampires when they see blood, fighting that urge to act upon that is makes for a very interesting character development. How do you role play with that, you know, without acting on it and killing people, but also not tossing it aside as, you know, as if it doesn't exist? Say you're playing a werewolf, you get in a bad situation and you wind up flipping out. How do you as a player act on it without you know really acting on it and, and messing up your your situation so like maybe you freak out and you run off you know maybe that's one way you do it one time or perhaps you tell the group hey if i flip out you splash me with this oil of wolves bane which will instantly calm me down something like that and for vampires you have to drink blood so you have to solve that issue you know is this a world where you're you sucking down true blood or is this a world where you're going to be feeding on rats and pigs or is this setting going to be where you have 10 vampire groupies that you feed off a little bit each day you know you don't turn them into a vampire and you don't kill any of them and you only take enough to sustain you and it does they don't really miss it all that much those are elements that you have to deal with if you're playing a ghost you got that intangibility thing going on when can you become solid what kind of problems do you have to deal with while you're intangible, if you can't become solid, you know, how do you play a character like that? Well, how would you? How would I do it? Yeah, how would you do it? How would you bring across your inhumanness as a ghost? Oh, man, that would be tough. That would be a very tough character. I don't know if I'd want to play one because I've thought of that before. I thought about how cool it would be to be able to, you know, be intangible. Nobody can hurt you and you can walk through walls and stuff. But then I'm like, but I can't do anything. I can't, I can't actually interact with things. That wouldn't be a good character for me because I, I like getting in the mix with things. A ghost would be a great, like, face character, though, because face characters, they don't have to, like, touch anything. If you could play it slick enough, no one would ever even know you were a ghost. I mean, as long as you weren't, like, you know, translucent. Except, oh, except for the fact that you could open any doors. God, yeah, that's, fact, yeah, that's tough. You're going to be dressed in whatever you died in, more or less, or at least the style you died in. So if you died in the 40s, you're going to be really retro at that point. Yeah. Well, style I, dress. Yeah, I guess, I guess <laughs> if I was going to play a ghost, I would have to have the stipulation that I had some kind of telekinetic power that I could at least, you know, concentrate or spend power points to activate that just enough to interact when I have to. Or have some type of magic item that allows you to be solid. There's the setting in D&D Ghost Walk, and they have manifest ring that the ghost, you know, acts like he puts it on. He becomes solid, and he can act normally with the material world. It's a ring of tangibility. Or the fact that in the uh, Haunts book from, from Bureau 13, there's a whole section of making uh, ghosts that included a section on their ability to affect solid objects. Some ghosts could, some ghosts just couldn't reach out. Some ghosts don't have legs. You'd be lucky to, to be a complete person with using those rules. What did Ghostbusters call it? A full-fledged apparition? Full torso apparition was the one that they used for the one in the lady down in the library. So here you are. You're a ghost. So one of the things that shows your aspect of a ghost is you may not fully materialize. You may only get half of you materializing. Maybe only an arm materializes. Maybe only your head materializes. That's one way of showing your monstrousness is because you don't appear completely. Another thing might be that if you only can use your powers when you concentrate on them, there's never any default setting where you're using a power. Your default setting is nothing. So you have to concentrate every time. When you appear, bam, all of a sudden you're right in front of somebody. You know, those jump scares that they put in movies? Well, maybe that's because you had to concentrate on it to make it happen, and there was no slow fade-in of the monster. It was also, bam, there's the monster. And then, bam, the monster's gone again because you got distracted and you suddenly no longer are manifesting because you're, you're trying to move something with your hand and instead of splitting your attention to appearing while you're doing that. So these are ways of showing yourself as being a monster and showing yourself different from a human being. Yeah, you also got the problem of, of only being visible to the elderly, very young children, most animals, all cats, and of course, those who are tuned to the psychic to the psychic means. So most bureau agents. So yeah, you're there, and the old folks will see you, the kids will see you, but everyone else is like, what person? You know, we're talking about the powers and, and what you can and can't do. Okay, if I was playing a ghost, one of the things I would want to bring to that character is the the whole aspect of the fact that you know you're dead, right? And you mm -hmm. also 
so have not passed on. So and maybe your character knows if there's a heaven or a hell. I guess it depends on you know whether the game what the game master and you agree on. Maybe your character doesn't know. Maybe he does know. Maybe he knew he was supposed to go to hell, but for some reason he isn't. He's given it a chance to be a reason why he would work with the bureau. Yeah, he dodged his reaper. Right, yeah, he dodges Reaper, or maybe he had very good potential and some higher power was like, hey, look, you know, we can't let you in right now, but we we see it in you, there's good in you, and we didn't really want you to go down there because, you know, or, or maybe you've been prophesied to do great things and we don't know how you got killed, but somehow uh, that happened, we're really sorry about that. However, you need to stick around a little while because you need to make this happen, and if you do, we'll let you into heaven. Which is a standard thing for most ghosts, they have an unfinished task. The other right. reason it could be, too, is that you went, the, your manner of death is so horrific, your soul just couldn't leave you quite yet. You may actually not know that you're dead. Right. Well, where <laughs> I was going with this is I'm, go- I'm going with the aspect that my character knows he's dead. And okay. I'm thinking about the depressive state that that would put him in. He'd be kind of like one of these these characters, you know, you could play while he's, he's hanging out with the party and stuff. He's like, you know, he's okay, you know, as long as he's around people. But, you know, he'd always have this depressive side to him. You know, it's like... I used to be alive. I don't really want to be dead, but now I am, and, and now I can't, you know, I can't even interact. I can't, I can't meet girls anymore. I really want a cigarette. It's those creature comforts. I mean, think about all the things that you enjoy, and as a ghost, you can't have any of them, but you can see them. They're there. You can watch mm-hmm. everybody else enjoying them, but you can't. Maybe being dead is painful. You know, there, there's always those kind of aspects that you might want to bring into the character. You know, maybe maybe you always smell the smell of rot because in that afterworld and in, in your limbo state, that's what it smells like there. It, I mean, it's up to you and the game master how you want to define that. Every time the team cleric pulls out his holy device, that, yeah, you got to go, but you got to go someplace else. It you, burns! Yeah, when they go to the cemetery, you stop at the edge because it's consecrated ground. Let's say your character was a church-going guy. Yeah. And he can't go anywhere near a church now, you know? Let's say he was a church-going guy. He was devout, and he was told that the afterlife was going to be A, B, and C. He's now a ghost, and that's definitely not A, B, and C. He would have to deal with that, the fact that, okay, I've been lied to all my life, and now I have to sit there and make peace with the fact that this is how I ended up after dying. That's another wonderful aspect to play if you're a ghost. If you were a religious person, you're... And then there's the other ghost you're going to encounter, some of whom are going to be more or less, well, let's say you're you're well-tempered and mild-mannered. Some of those ghosts are going to just be basically... Uh, they'll put Charlie Manson for shame. Oh, they could be raging. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or just downright creepy like the twins in, Shi- in The Shining. Let's talk about, talk about vampires for a second because I was just thinking about one of my guilty pleasures... <laughs> is uh, I like the show True Blood. But one of the things I really like about it is what they do with the characters. I mean, it's it's literally a vampire soap opera. Each character has his own motivation, very deep in their storyline with their different motivations and why they do the things they do. And the characters evolve. From the beginning of the series, you got one character who seems like a bad guy, but and this other one that seems like a good guy. And, and where they are now in the show, they have switched roles completely. And it turns out the one guy trying to do all this righteous stuff, he has been led down a path of bad things. And the other guy, because of the situation and everything that's going on, it turns out that he actually turns out to be a good guy given all the new situations of the things that are going on because the because the situation changed. Motivation can be really crazy. So if you if you develop the motivation for your character, the events that happen in the world could change your character drastically if you if you developed him very well. And you know, with a vampire, they can be very, very complex characters, you know, because they're not they're not dead, they're not living. It's kind of glamorous, but it also pardon the pun, kind of sucks at the same time. They can make very interesting characters. You don't have to go down the usually played routes that you see in in movies and stuff with vampires. You you can go all over the place with them. Also, another uh, monster that has gotten a lot of press lately, like in the Underworld series, lycanthropes, especially werewolves. I mean, there are other types of were-creatures. You have were-bears, were-tigers, were-rats, were-wolves. And in Course Bureau 13, you have where squirrels i mean you can really go because in bureau 13 all stories are true but the one main thing that all lycanthropes have to deal with is that savage bestial nature and especially on the three days of the full moon where they are savage bestial creatures they don't have a choice in the matter 
Now, they can yeah. usually pose as human beings, but at night they're able to change. And they have to deal with the fact that they have this animalistic side that they have to keep in check constantly because in combat they might change spontaneously. If they are attacked, they might change spontaneously. If there's blood in a battle, they might change spontaneously. Sort of like Meller. Yeah, yeah. That 50-50 chance. <laughs> yeah. That depends highly on the were creature you are. Mm-hmm. Let's say, for example, you're playing a were bear. Bears, they don't generally attack people. I mean, maybe they're not that crazy. Maybe they're not as crazy. But, you know, for that matter, maybe this is all overblown. I mean, you, you could do that with your character. You, you could say, well, this whole werewolf thing is overblown. I mean, people were terrified of wolves. So naturally, if they ran into a werewolf, the werewolf is naturally bad like the, like the wolves are. But in reality, wolves almost never attack people. You know, this whole idea that we flip out and attack people and, you know, and kill people out of bloodlust is a little overblown. You could always go that direction. It's also very culture-specific. You know, werewolves, we all remember the Lon Chaney movies. The afflicted person would see a pentagram in his victim's hand. He would know who his next target was going to be, which is why they were always were so depressed. I know who I'm going to kill next. He might say, you know, three days out of the month, I want my ears scratched really badly. <laughs> <laughs> but for somebody to rub my tummy. <laughs> well, like, like a were-tiger. If you're talking like a were-tiger, say, of India... They actually may be a completely different creature altogether. They may actually may not be a person becomes a tiger. They may become maybe be a tiger that becomes a person. Oh yeah, yeah. There's that, right? Right. Yeah. The biggest thing you've got to deal with here is there's two different kinds of creatures. Mm-hmm. You've got the humans who have been afflicted or transformed by something to become a supernatural creature. They're looking at their basic humanity that is either being oppressed or twisted by the fact that they now have this new nature. And then you have the other situation where you are a supernatural creature who's never been human, who may pose as a human, but you're basically a different creature. Uh, You have different motivation, you have different culture, different backgrounds, different emotional responses to different situations in your life. That's why it's so hard to make these really kind of general statements about a werewolf. Because a werewolf is a creature that is a supernatural creature that changes form and breeds true and and has baby lycanthrope and so forth, that's totally different than a man who's been cursed to turn into a bloodlust creature on on the full moon and, and kill whoever's nearest to him. You are right in that. In natural versus afflicted, I'll use the D&D terminology, the natural lycanthropes they would see themselves as a different creature. They would see themselves as, okay, I'm better than humans. I have the best of both worlds. I can pose as a human, or I can change and just rip through these humans like, you know, they're, t- you know, like they're paper. I'm faster than them, stronger than them. I have, if I'm long-lived, I have more experience than them. My senses are incredibly sharper than theirs. And, yeah, they would have a different mindset, that of superiority. And even ones who are working for the Bureau, that their intentions are, I wish to save humanity, they still would have that sense of superiority of, yeah, I'm helping you guys out, and because I'm able to. I can do stuff you can't. Yeah, and then you have things like Raksasha, which is from India, which is I was mentioning about the tigers. Well, yeah, this these are the people, these creatures that resemble an animal most normally, but they can be, assume the form of humans. Nagas are another thing. They could, you know, serpents, they could take on human form. You know, so these are different kinds of shapeshifters, and they are different kinds of beings. Say you're the other kind of lycanthrope. You're a wolf that becomes a man. Well, when you go on the fringe paths, after 18 hours, you turn into a wolf, or whatever your, your base creature is. And you stay that way till you, get, till you get back someplace where it supports your form of shapeshifting Lycanthropy. Then you can revert, gain your powers back again. Bruce, if you go back to a node that supports your powers, is it instantaneous or is it 18 hours before you get them back? What powers are we referring to? Oh, like a lycanthrope. You know, 18 hours after he's off his node, he's a normal whatever. Human or... We're talking fringeworthy. Yeah, fringeworthy. You'd revert back to, let's say, an animal form. Yeah. Right, because you could turn into a man. You travel back to a node that supports you, I'd say, yeah, as soon as you go in there and you're now in the environment that supports you, then you'd be able to start changing back to a man again. These 
animals that can change into human lycanthropes. Is this a magical curse? Is it a magical effect? Or is it a genetic thing? Because if it's genetics, that would stay no matter what. Like in Japan, they have lots of animals that have the ability to shapeshift. Uh, this is like within folklore, like the fox. The fox can become a, a human being. The kitsune, yes, I'm familiar with. Yeah, in that, in that case, that's a spiritual thing. It's a, They're spirits, basically. Okay, then that would be magic and they'd have the 18-hour bubble, yes. Think about it this way, Trav. Your own body has the ability to reform itself slowly. You get fractures and things like that in your bones from stress, and your body breaks down the parts of your bone and reforms it as, as a thing. It's a slow process. And anybody who, who's grown exceptionally fast during their teen years might have had pains in their legs and things like that. So any kind of a really fast change, unless it, we're really talking about a race that's designed to do that, where they are mostly cartilage uh, or they have some kind of a specialized reforming and reforming type thing, like a Meller. Yeah. We're talking about something that's pretty much a supernatural power. Okay. Therefore, that's where it comes into effect. If you are something that was created with the ability to be protean, then, and therefore it is, and as you put it, genetic, then yeah, you should be able to do that no matter where you go. Yeah. I can imagine a race of sentient cephalopods capable of, it looks like a human, human being. Except that they can't take the clothes off, and you know they basically, when scared, they turn back into the cephalopod form, because it's all just coloration and uh, texture, which they can do. Or you had a creature that was inside; they were they were basically like an amoeba, but with better transport of materials. But they had the ability to exude some material that would crystallize into an exoskeleton that would give it a, a particular shape it wanted to have. At that point, you could therefore take the shape of a dog or a shape of a man or a shape of anything. There might be some additional coloration aspects that could make you mimic something. So, But inside, you're really just a big gooey thing that has a lot of uh, erectile tissue that can pull and push and stuff like that. If you were to crack the, the, the exoskeleton for some reason, then the thing would fall into a shapeless mass because until it could re-exude things so that it could pr- provide structure and support for itself. Yeah. That's possible. You know, it's, it just depends on how you're going to do it. But the way we think of, of uh, shape changers, the ability to change from one to another within, let's say, an hour's period of time, that's enormous amounts of bodily change, unless we're talking a very close analog to yourself, more like a man-wolf, where you sprout animalistic features, but you're more or less retaining the basic structure of a man. I'm reminded of the transformation scene from American Werewolf in London. They did it on purpose. They wanted to make it painful. You're going from a human being to a wolf. And that's not going to be a pleasant transformation. If you want to see one that's painful, watch American Werewolf in London. The bones are cracking and the skin (laughs) is stretching and the guy's screaming. And none of the neighbors are bothered by this. Yeah. Talking about the amoeba, I'm a puppet master and I've turned over a new leaf and I want to join the bureau. But trouble is, by myself, I'm useless. However, stick me on somebody, I'm great. So you could make a, let's say, a partnership with somebody who was mentally deficient. Yeah. uh, Though I would say a puppet master does require the use of the person's higher facilities. So if they are, depending on what portions of their brains are is not developed enough, he may actually reject a person who has uh, mental issues. But we don't know that. So yeah, yeah. The other alternative, because we also know from that story by Heinlein that they could take over the body of an ape had no trouble they were very smart uh apes so they could easily do that and you know most people don't think that apes have the higher mentation that humans do but they were very effective in what they were doing they also did cats they did dogs there was a one point they even suggested that maybe there was an elephant that had been taken over by one of these there's a lot of possibilities there uh, we were talking initially about characters who could pass for human most times of the month. Then we got to go into the case where the guy goes, no, but I really want to play the creature from the Black Lagoon. I want him walking around the streets or at least, you know, be a viable member and not waiting in the van. 
I want to be out there. So now you have to deal with a character who really is inhuman and has no shape-changing capabilities whatsoever, and he wants to be an active member of the team. Okay. So we have Donatello, who goes out for pizza. Yeah. In all the stories with the... Uh, Trench coat and a, and a fedora. Right. And as long as he keeps his shadows and makes his phone calls you know, from a payphone or whatever, a cell phone, he manages pretty well. The natural way to go about that is glamour magic, right, John? Yeah, yeah. You have to have some sort of magic that either physically changes their shape or covers them up with an illusion. Yeah. If I had my druthers as a player character, I I would rather the former than the latter. Illusion magic, you still got six-inch talons when you're shaking someone's hands. However, anyone who can see through illusions is going to see through it. Yeah. yeah. A shape-changing spell of some sort would be the way to go. Trouble is, a power enough magic user, take it down in a second. It can't be without its challenge. If you choose to play a character of that make, you have to deal with the consequences of it. Yeah. And that's what makes the game fun. That's kind of the fun of it, you know? it's Your character starts getting nervous when he encounters a true wizard, and he's just like, hmm, yeah, this guy, I'm a little worried about this guy. Or like a psionic, you know? Uh-huh. Um, but one of the things I like to use a lot, instead of using illusion magic or um, you know some kind of shape changing, I like to do the psionic illusion. You basically use psionics to tell the other creatures what they want to see. You know, mm. you, you let them see their expectation. So in that case, it's not magic; it's psionics, unless of course your system doesn't differentiate between the two. But then something like Carillion glasses might not see through it. Or even if they did, it wouldn't matter because your brain is being told that what you're seeing is okay. And the one bad thing about psionic disguising is that, yes, it works on living souls. Any Unless the living soul is, sees through psionic illusions, humans and sentient beings and things with brains will be fooled. Problem is, if you go walking into a top-secret facility with surveillance, your psionic illusions don't mean squat. You're looking at this surveillance film and you see the creature of the black lagoon walking along with three or four humans infiltrating the facility and they're like huh and or you walk up to a dog right a cop with a dog and a dog is just going crazy and the cop's like what's yeah, wrong with you boy and sarah's rose is a thing called constructs well they basically have no mind or at least no mind that you can affect therefore they see right through you Maybe all those in line of sight. You have to know that they're present, be able to do this to them. But someone four blocks away sees you as a creature from the Black Lagoon. But as you get closer, you stop looking like the Black Lagoon creature, and you start looking more like a human being. So you're saying it would have to be like a a psionic ability that radiates out only so far. Most psionic abilities in most games have a limitation to them. Those within a certain distance will see you as a human being. Those outside that will see you as a, as a creature from the Black Lagoon. That also applies to magic spells, too, which is why I think magic is probably the better way of going at this point than, um, than using a sonic ability. Cool as it is, it's, it has more limitations, and the Bureau knows what those limitations are. People with psychic invisibility, Bureau's got cameras everywhere, and smart AI is watching them because it can't be fooled by the psychic invisibility. Right. I have a problem with, well, not a problem, but John, you mentioned in our notes before the show in our Facebook group, all these other races, the Yetis, the Creature from Black Lagoon. Blob. Yes, these creatures, unless you use some type of distortive, illusionary magic or effect, you really can't play these. I mean, a blob, an amorphous blob, I mean... And the thing is, you got players out there who will want to play these characters. The GM's going to try to find some way to work around it. Like you said, you, yeah, you've got this medallion you got to wear all the time so you look like a normal human being. Now, you may be seven foot tall because you're a Sasquatch, but you look like a normal hum- human being while you're wearing this medallion. Take it off, no longer look like a human being. So what would be funny is, is as you walk through a doorway, your guy appears to be short enough to walk through it, but he ducks down underneath of something that's not there. You're like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? That's exactly what he should do. That's the kind of way you bring across mm-hmm. the fact that you're not really what you see. Or you, you can also deal with things like the uh, one-off mutations. I've been playing a superhero game for a while, and my character is a mixture of human and gecko genes. He's Gecko Man. He stands four foot tall. He would have a really hard time mixing in with people because he looks like a gecko. But he would save you 15% on your car insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Since he's used to being a gecko, he's only human, 
his gait's going to be wrong. He's going to do like quick steps and stop, look around. Quick steps and stop, look around. That's the sort of thing that you should be doing to bring out your monsterness, your inhumanness. And because he's a mutation, he's not quite gecko, he's not quite human. He's a one of a kind. And there's that aspect. You know, he's like, okay, yeah, I see all these people and they got girlfriends and stuff like and I got me. All right. So there's that bit of loneliness there because he, you know, well, you could be ghosts. You know, there's other ghosts around, there's other humans around. When you're a one off genetic mutation, you're it. And most likely, nine times out of ten, freak mutations like that are sterile. So even if another member of the race was somehow created, Without great scientific or magical intervention, possibly on a deific level, you're not going to be able to procreate. So it's like, yeah, you may have love, but you may want to do things. That, you know, it's like, great, they've made this other gecko, they've made me a gecko woman. Uh, unfortunately, we're both sterile. You know, you're the alien who crashed land on Earth. You either live your life in Area 51 for most of your time, or you're out there trying to find some way to blend in. I think the problem is that it can easily and quickly devolve into camp. It stops being a serious game, or at least semi-serious, as most as any game can be, to a camp game where you're playing the Monster Squad. you got Frankenstein's Monster, Dracula. You know, you're just using named characters at that point. That'd be a great little one-shot, but not as a long-term campaign. The thing is with these creatures, vampires, werewolves, ghosts, uh, possibly aliens, creatures from Black Lagoon, we humans have three minds. We've got our rational, logical mind. Then we have our animalistic mind. Then at the deep base core, we got our reptilian mind, which the reptilian mind is basically what is responsible for our fight or flight. There are certain aspects of these creatures, vampires, werewolves, etc., that set off that reptilian mind. Now, bureau agents, yes, they are trained to deal with the weird. Lesser extent, so are IDET. But still, there's going to be that part that humans are just going to be going, we got to have what on our team? These creatures that are joining the vampires, the werewolves, whatever, they're going to be realizing deep down, yes, I am inhuman. I have these powers. I have this mindset. And everybody on my team, on some level, hates my guts and possibly may want to kill me. Now, if I was a human on the team, I'd be probably wanting to carry a cross on me. Because you know at some time, your vampire may just decide to lose his stuff. Or the werewolf. And you as this werewolf character, you're going to be playing on this bureau team, and you're going to be knowing that possibly there's going to be humans on your team that may not want you there. Yeah, they, they are benefiting from your powers and experience and your abilities and whatnot. But you have to deal with the fact that they may not want you there, and it may not be on a rational level, this, this desire to not have you around. It's going to be that animalistic and reptilian mind just going, it's creepy, get it away from me. And you have to play that, the fact that you're going to have this distance from these your fellow teammates because of your very intrinsic nature. That is something else that needs to be brought up when you play a quote-unquote monster character. And it could be something as far-ranging as a blob or a yeti or a sasquatch or a creature from the black lagoon which i a fishman i guess would be a better term if we want to get away from the longer term a fishman ape sapien or abe 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 sapien abe sapien an ichthyoid i guess would be the term if i wanted to be a fish the cryptozoological term but even vampires and werewolves who can relatively pass a human they still have to realize that deep down i am an inhuman being and I'm around people that on some level do not want me around and may wish to cause me harm. And they are keeping it together because they are being ordered to by our superiors. But you know what? There's also the aspect of playing the character who enjoys that. You know, he likes being the most powerful guy in the room. Maybe you're playing the only monster in the room. Well, yeah. You, yeah, usually unless you're playing an all-monster team, yeah, you're only going to have, let's say you have a party of six people. At the most, you might have two supernatural characters in a Bureau 13 team. And we're not, and as I said in our previous uh, episode 54, I believe it was, you have people with magic and psionics and, and all, you know, spells and special abilities, superpowers. Then you have the supernatural beings. I'm talking just like four number of humans, and then you have a vampire and werewolf. The Bureau has decided to fight fire with fire. 
you know what? That's a nice segue. Let's move this on, if you guys don't mind, to okay. why the Bureau would use these guys and what, what would they do with them? How would they use them? Well, the first thing that could possibly happen, and I think this is a big source of motivation for you as a supernatural creature, is it may be that you're forced to do it. You could be a genie. You had to grant a wish, and some wily uh, Bureau 13 agent said, okay, fine, my wish is that you stay and help the team for the rest of your life. Oh, oh what's it? Oh, wow. You could have a lot of situations where the person is forced to be on the team. Maybe you've got the magic item that forces obedience, or it's something that without it, they'll die. And so you, as long as you keep it with the team, they're forced to play good and play, you know, and, and play along. That could create an awful lot of tension be, between you as a, a player of a monster and the rest of the team and create a lot of different dynamics than if you were just somebody who wanted that path of redemption, for example. This would be a case of where the Bureau says, hey, this is really useful. We want this guy on a team, so therefore... Or the team members themselves said that, and they're forcing you to be on the team. Let's take your ghost. In, in a lot of legends, ghosts are tied to this world by some kind of anchor. There's some kind of physical device that ties them to the world. Well, let's say you know, the Bureau has managed to get a hold of this item, and you as the ghost, you don't know who has it or where it is. I mean, just because you're a ghost doesn't mean that you have any kind of knowledge where you can walk through walls and everything, but which wall do you walk through? Let's say you can't find it. And they say, you know, you have to do what we say. You, you need to help us or we're going to destroy this item. I don't know. Maybe as a ghost you'd mess up some people and this is your pay. They say, you know, you, you owe us. You owe society or you killed a bureau agent. Or you're not ready to go and they'll make you go if you, they destroy this object. Right. And maybe you know you're going to hell or you're not sure. Maybe that's, you know, maybe it's kind of up in the air. It's like, well, I didn't go up, so maybe I'm going to go down. It's that whole fear of death because if you think about it, I'm dead because I'm a ghost, but I'm not really dead because I haven't moved on yet. So I don't really know where I'm going to go yet. So if they destroy this item, then I have to go there. So that's almost the same fear as you would have as a living human because you're afraid of what's going to happen after death. Well, as a ghost, yeah, you're, you're, you, know, you have died and now you're a ghost, but you still don't know what's going to happen when they destroy that item. So you'd still have that same fear. That's one way to like hold, say, a ghost. Let's say you're playing a vampire, and for the most part, vampires are hunted in the world. But you know, somehow you've proven to the agency that you're not like the other vampires. And they're like, look, we'll supply you with blood, and we won't hunt you down, but you got to work for us. You know, and maybe they supply you with some kind of true blood type of thing or something. And, I mean, what else are you going to do? You know, it's not like you can hold a job or something. You know, but you don't, you don't want to go, but you also don't want to be the evil vampire. So this is a great gig for you. Yeah, Bureau 13, the older supplements called them forgiven vampires, that they have actually worked out a path of redemption and they realize that they want to be a part of society or at least help out in some fashion. They jo most likely join the Bureau, yeah. Yeah, it could be a vampire that willingly became a vampire to save someone he loved. So he willingly let the vampire turn him. He basically was coerced into becoming a vampire. Or it could be, as you put it, Peter, this could be a creature that, because of its nature, literally can't hide. There's no place for it to go. There are no vast stretches of forest for him to hide in anymore. And therefore, there's only two choices, with the Bureau or destroying him. Right. Look, if you hang with us, then we'll protect you. We'll provide you with the magic you need to keep you hidden. But if you leave, we have to put you down. This is the only choice we have left. We're talking about doing this episode, you know, there's a couple of movies that come to mind. And movies are, are just a great way to tell the story to, to our, you know, for our listeners to, to picture things. It's a great way for me to picture things just because it's, you know, it's, it's Hellboy just rings uh, of this, what we're talking mm -hmm. about. You know, oh, like, yeah. a Hell, like a Hellboy type team. So you've got Hellboy, a, a demon. They discovered him and he's on Earth and this is the only life that he has known. And what else is he going to do? I mean... He doesn't want to go back to hell. He likes his Snickers bars and kittens and stuff and all the stuff they give him and the girl that he likes. And he, he actually likes hanging out with humans. He, he, it's, it's obvious. So he doesn't want to go back to hell. He could. That option's open to him, but he doesn't want to. But what else has he got? What else could he do? 
So he rather enjoys his job. You know, they feed him, they give him a place to live, and they let him beat stuff up. You know, that's his job. Go beat stuff up. I like beating stuff up. For him, it's a win-win, and he also gets to mess with people, and there's nothing they can really do to him for messing with him. In a lot of ways, he's got a really good life. So where's the conflict? The conflict is is that he likes hanging out with the humans and being like a human, but he's not human, and it's very obvious. And there's a lot of stuff he can't do. He will turn. He will try to take over Earth. They, you see several visions of it. And even Liz Sherman, the pyrokinetic on the team, knows that down the line, he will turn. Yet she ends up, and I'm not doing any spoilers there because this movie's been out for years. She's pregnant with his twins at the end of the second movie. I'm not, you know, the, the movie's been out for like five years now. He knows that he is destined for evil, but in that meantime... He is going to fight for humanity. Also, another conflict is, yeah, he looks different. He has to be secret. He has to, and of course, you know, Tom Manning, Jeffrey Tambor's character, has to constantly do, um, not PR, what's the term I'm looking for here? Uh, crowd can damage control, right? Evidence dispersal. <laughs> yeah, right, in order to make sure, no, he's not real, no, 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 that's a blurry picture, you know. They're doing a movie. Yeah, right, exactly, that's another one, yeah. There's another conflict in that, Hellboy is a glory hound. He likes the glory. He wants to come out. He wants to be seen. He wants to brag about the stuff he's doing. He's a hot shot. And, yeah. you know, they're constantly telling him, no, you can't do this. You can't come out. He's like, oh, come on, man. He wants to be part of society. But he, yeah. but he can't. He obviously can't. And that goes back to what I was trying to say in the beginning, which is Hellboy, he's a demon. He's prideful. It's his nature to want to go and get attention. It's no secret why the Bureau would want to use a team like this or use a couple of these guys on their team. I mean, come on, let's face it. They're powerful. They get the job done. The bricks that you can send in to do the crazy stuff or the, or the in the case of like a ghost, they're this super great tool. It's like, all right, we need to find out this information. Send the ghost in. You know, the ghost can just fly through the walls, reach into the safe, read the thing, come back, say, oh, yeah, the thing is in the safe. And they're normally on our side. The Bureau, for Bureau 13D20, I had to compile all the timelines from all the various uh, previous stuff. The Bureau did not start using any type of magic until 1889. And this, by this time, was 25 years into the Bureau's inception. Until then, it was guts and guns. They, they finally picked up a witch and an alchemist. And over the course of the next 150 years is when they started using more and more magic. And then supernatural creatures got involved. It's the Bureau fighting fire with fire. It's like, we're dealing with people throwing spells and creatures of magical origin. We need some of them on our side. Or otherwise, we are going to get severely outclassed. Right, we're going to lose. Yes, we are going to lose the good fight. So yeah, they're, they're going to sit there and, if anything, a balance of power. You guys have your demons? Hey, we got our demons or we got our angels. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.